This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. If you picked up a copy of the New York Times this past Sunday, you were probably struck by this photo just below the fold on A1. It is shocking, right? I mean, I'm looking at it right now. It's a seven-year-old girl, and she looks like a baby bird. She's so thin. Right. And in that same image, image, what struck some of us is she's also, you know, gives the impression of, of just looking away, with, which both makes it easier and harder to look and to take it in. This little girl is named Amal Hussein. She lives in Yemen and she's starving. The reaction has been, I thought we might get, um, based on other stories and, uh, you know, over the years, I thought we might get people protesting the use of such graphic imagery. Huh. but. For the most part, actually, I didn't hear any protests. What we got were um, a lot of people who just wrote in and said, how can we help? Eric Nagorny has been editing stories about Yemen at the Times for a while. And he says the response he got from readers on this story, it just wasn't what he was expecting. Many of his emails were angry. They were very, very angry. And they said, in one form or another, why did you ignore this story? Which is Which was a frustrating response because... You know, a simple Google search would show that we actually have written about Yemen quite a lot. Eric says the problem with covering what's been happening in Yemen is that it's really complicated. And at its heart, this is a policy story. People are not starving or on the brink of mass starvation because there was an earthquake. You know, there was no plague of locusts. There was no, you know, nothing biblical has happened there. Instead, they're starving, although they're surrounded by food because of political decisions by not just Saudi Arabia, but Saudi Arabia is leading the war, uh, but by a group of nations that have made a conscious decision to advance their uh, political aims and their territorial aims and regional aims, regardless of what happens to civilians. But up until this month, when journalist Jamal Khashoggi was killed by a team of Saudi operatives, many Americans just weren't looking that closely at Saudi Arabia's policies in Yemen. Many people weren't considering Yemen at all. Even though the word crisis... It seems to underestimate what's been happening here. One of the things you learn in this business is that people often, but they don't see stories or they don't want to see stories. You can write something very powerful, but it doesn't always have resonance. You can always do more. Maybe you can never do enough. But I do think the reason it got as much attention as it did is because of Khashoggi. Or I think that helped. Yeah, and those photos, because they were so arresting. They're arresting and heart-stopping, and um, they just make you stop and look and think and wonder. You know, a lot of us wonder what, what happens to the kids in those photos. He's captured a moment in time. I'm Mary Harris. Today we're going to take you inside Yemen, where a war has been simmering for more than three years. It's a battle that defies the usual framework of good guys and bad guys. The Saudi-backed Yemeni government is overseeing a famine of its own making. Meanwhile, Houthi rebels are aligned with Iran, and they seem intent on creating a sectarian police state. 
Fatima al-Asrar is here. She's Yemeni herself. She's got a fascinating perspective on the war, one that Slate's own international affairs editor, he doesn't quite agree with. But with news today that the United States is calling for an end to the conflict in Yemen, we wanted an insider's perspective. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. We have just these binary ways of defining Yemen. Yemen has become um, defined from a counterterrorism approach. And it's been very difficult to break free from that. Now I see a shift. I see it defined as a failed state, as, you know, a humanitarian disaster and catastrophe. This is Fatima al-Asrar. I wanted to talk to Fatima because her family's from southern Yemen, and she's got this distinctly third-culture kid view of the situation there. Before she was born, her parents moved the family because southern Yemen was becoming unsafe. She grew up in Kuwait and the United Arab Emirates. But when it was time for Fatima to go to college, she wanted to go back to her family's home country. I've always just wondered what it would be like to just be a Yemeni just being born in a land outside of, you know, mine, to see women, you know, covering their faces. My parents were so worried about, you know, sexism around that time or me not being treated fairly in Yemen because it's such a tribal society up in the north. And I was just treated with kindness and respect, had many friends from the north, from the south. It was just a beautiful time back in the early 90s. It sounds to me like you went to Yemen kind of looking for a piece of yourself. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I think you can hear in her voice that Fatima has this blend of Western education and values, but also this deep affection for Yemen. It's like the opposite of journalistic detachment. Fatima is a senior analyst at the Arabia Foundation, which is a group of scholars who focus on the Middle East. It has ties to Saudi Arabia. And she says American media coverage, especially in the wake of Jamal Khashoggi's murder, has focused too narrowly on the Saudis' involvement in Yemen's civil war. To her, the situation is far too complicated for that. But I'm jumping ahead. Let me go back to Fatima and what it was like for her, a young Yemeni woman living in her home country for the first time. 
I think I went there with a mindset of almost an Orientalist <laughs> because I wanted to change things to the better. I saw poverty, I saw malnourishment, lack of education. I felt that women were not so advanced and I wanted really to rally up behind gender empowerment. And I saw all of these things that I thought I could change. And reality check for me was people were just proud being who they were. Women did not want to be emancipated, as I thought. Huh. You know, men were really proud of their traditional tribal values, and they want to change to be slow and gradual. And I have to say, I've seen that change slow and gradual in my lifetime. But also because we were so open to change, we were also, uh, as Yemenis, open to a lot of catastrophic shocks. So we've seen a lot about Yemen in the news over the last couple of weeks, mostly because we've been more closely looking at Saudi Arabia and their role in the region. But you've talked a lot about how we really misunderstand what's happening in Yemen. Can you tell me a little bit about how the current instability we're seeing, it has its roots all the way back in the Arab Spring, right? Correct. How did it start? In the Arab Spring, the youth just had hopes that they will have a corrupt, free government. A huge corruption, including institutional corruption, was just plaguing their lives. So uh, having had uh, former President Ali Abdullah Saleh governed for 30 years, that was unacceptable. So Arab Spring comes and there was an agreement that was reached uh, after an 11 months of, of deadlock. And that agreement was sponsored by the Gulf countries and uh, also the EU and the United States and others. And then what happened? What happened is that the people who were not entirely very happy with, with how civil that was, decided that violence could actually work better than peace. So you're describing the Arab Spring happening, this time of tremendous hope with this very careful process being orchestrated to try to rebuild the government, and then this sudden collapse. Exactly. Ali Abdullah Saleh allied with the Houthi rebels, and they pretty much uh, overthrew the government. Who, For people who don't know who the Houthi rebels are, can you tell me a little bit more about them? It's hard to say this without oversimplifying, but it's a clan. The Houthis are a clan. I mean, NGOs, Yemeni NGOs and, and other, you know, women that I work with, they don't call them tribes. They call them bandits. They're outlaws. They are operating currently outside of the boundaries of the law, of the Constitution, and people can't stand up to them because they have the power of the gun. They are governing based on racial or genealogical supremacy, where they feel that only people who have a relationship or through a bloodline with the Prophet are the ones who are entitled to govern Yemen. And this is extremely dangerous in Yemen's politics. It's not. It's something that Yemenis have tried to get rid of for a millennia. Well, it sounds under, like it's dangerous in any politics. It's it just dangerous creates in, underclasses. Exactly. So uh, it's a class-based uh, uh, governorship, and uh, it pushes a button for many Yemenis in the north because before 1962, for a thousand years, this is how they were ruled. So when people say that the Houthis have some type of legitimist grievance, it's not one that we could relate to in, in our modern age. They, they want to make Yemen yeah, great again. Ex exactly. <laughs> yes, to put it simply. <laughs> well, and at the same time, these rebels and what's happening in Yemen has become this 
proxy war, right? Where it's not just the Houthis, it's also Iran supporting them. And it's not just the Yemeni government, it's Saudi Arabia as well, right? Because Saudi Arabia has also become really enmeshed in this fight in ways that are toxic in different ways. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, if you if you speak to a lot of Yemenis today, they almost forget about, you know, the main grievance, which was the Houthi Saleh thing, and are now focusing on the new additional grievance, which comes from the Saudi-led intervention. I think what's so hard about understanding what's happening in Yemen is that it's these multiple interlocking tragedies that are hard to disentangle and understand. Yemen, when you speak about it, to me, it doesn't even quite sound like a country. It sounds like it's fighting gangs. Yes, that's that's correct. In the northern parts of the country where the Houthis are dominating, um, they're dominating urban areas in there, they're imposing a totalitarian regime where basically they have eyes everywhere. They know what you're up to. Um, they squash dissent. They squash protests. They ban social media. So people have to use now VPNs to get around it. And you describe these women like enforcement squads, right? Yeah. Th- these women squads are called Zainabiyat. It's almost like the Aunt Lydia's of The Handmaid's Tale. Mm-hmm. So they can stop you. They can look anytime. If you're in the university or if you're in the bus, they can look at your phone, see the types of messages that you've been sending. And if they suspect something, they'll throw you in jail. And then when the Saudi-controlled areas, it looks different, but not that much more inviting. Yeah. In government control areas, A, the government of Yemen is not doing that good, and it could do much better. I feel like it has outsourced many things to the coalition. When you say the coalition, you mean Saudi, Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia, Arabia. AE, Kuwait, you know, and others. I think it has outsourced a lot of things to the coalition, and it shouldn't. So we talked about the Houthis. I feel like we really described what's happening there really well. And But those aren't the pictures I've been seeing out of, you know, the New York Times I've seen a totally different tragedy, which is you know, children starving and there not being enough money to feed them. Um, exactly. So you have fundamental problems there. One is the fact that, you know, government salaries haven't been paid for the past three years in the north of Yemen. In the south, they're being paid. And part of the reason is uh, the coalition and the government just, you know, was was thinking that, okay, if you end up paying it, you don't know if the Houthis are going to take it and use it for their war effort. But after so much, um, you know, loss and devastation, um, some measures have popped up recently to ease from this. So, for example, two days ago, the government of Yemen has announced that they will be paying the salaries of teachers in the north. This is long overdue. So for the average Yemeni citizen, if you're anywhere in middle income, you're pretty much destitute. Mm-hmm. At, at the time being. Um, and of course, the Houthi militia has not been kind at the same time. So they impose high taxes on people. This is basically how they fund their war effort from the local economy. The Houthis. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And uh, I mean, you know, the Houthis are are not skeletons and people who, who follow them are not skeletons. The skeletons are the people who have not, are not necessarily pro-Houthi loyalists. 
or people who are just, you know, too poor and too unimportant for the Houthis to look after. Is it fair, though, to say that the Saudi-Yemeni coalition's effort to choke out the Houthis is really harming regular people caught in the middle? I think they take the blame. They take part of the blame, but not all of the blame. A lot of the Houthi crimes are just being lost and people don't understand the complexity of the situation. It sounds to me like in the last couple of weeks, we've heard about the war in Yemen primarily as a way to talk about Saudi Arabia in the wake of Jamal Khashoggi's death. But what you're saying is that we need to look deeper than that. And it sounds like you place the real blame at the foot of the Houthis. There's there's enough blame to go around for everybody. I mean, in war, I don't think anyone is right. Let's say Saudi Arabia goes away tomorrow and it's no longer there in the picture. We will not have peace in Yemen. So there are thousands of people who are going to continue to die. There is devastation. And we're going to probably see a, a huge army that is mobilized ideologically to be aligned with Iran. I think we're being, Yemenis are being used for an Iranian agenda. And the Saudis want to get rid of that, and I just don't think that they were able to, to do it effectively. Fatima, thank you so much. Thank you, my dear. Take care. Fatima al-Asrar is a senior analyst at the Arabia Foundation. I want to leave you with one more image from Yemen, because it really stuck with me. Just before we stopped talking, Fatima told me about a 13-year-old Yemeni boy she'd met while she was doing research on this war. He'd been a child soldier, and he told her he missed fighting. Fatima said all of the factions in this fight have reportedly recruited children to fight for them. If there's anything that all Yemenis agree on that is very dangerous, is the indoctrination that's going around. It's the fact that there are posters in school that says, as a child, my right is to fight. If there's anything that is aggravating people, it's that kids as young as six and seven are just repeating sectarian hogwash that does not belong in schools. If this is not scaled back, Yemen is going to end up becoming a hostile country. And that scares me. The long term scares me. Because for a very long time, it's been very hard to get out of this um, terrorism thing. This yeah. is why Yemenis can't get a visa anywhere. And it poses a threat to everyone. Exactly. That's our show. What Next is a new daily show from Slate. This is our third week of piloting in public. You've got just a few more weeks to give us feedback on what we're up to. This show is spaghetti thrown at the wall. We are seeing what sticks. So tell us what's sticking with you. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'll see your comments there, and you'll also help other people find the show. What Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris, and produced by Mary Wilson and Jason DeLeon. Our engineer is Terrence Bernardo. Thanks to producer Daniel Hewitt for all of her help recording in D.C. today. Talk to you tomorrow. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working... The HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. 
Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.